From Foreign Policy and the Brookings Institution, we bring you And Now the Hard Part. I'm Jonathan Tepperman. On each episode, we examine one vexing problem, trace its origin, and offer a way forward. Today, how to reset the U.S. relationship with China. China has been taking advantage of the United States for many, many years. I'm not just talking about during the Obama administration. Uh, you can go back long before that. Chinese fakes cost Western companies billions of dollars a year in lost revenue. And aren't just... Hey, we continue our look this morning at what China does not want you to see. The United States says the superpower is reclaiming land in the South China Sea. We're taking in right now hundreds of billions of dollars. We're taking in billions of dollars of tariffs. You know, it sounds good and you can get an applause out of the group when you say, we're going to slap a tariff on China, we're going to go to war with China. The reality is far different. Beijing reacted to the latest bout of U.S. tariffs by fighting back, hiking taxes on $60 billion worth of key American imports. Think beans to Budweiser. The markets quickly plummeted following President Trump's threat to escalate trade tensions with China, ending 623 points down. Our guest today is Brian Haas, one of the China experts at Brookings. So, Ryan, welcome. Here's what we're dealing with. Tensions between the United States and China have been dominating headlines for many, many months now. The relationship between the countries seems worse today than at any point, arguably since Beijing and Washington established official ties all the way back in 1979. The relationship has gotten bad for all sorts of reasons. There's trade, there's technology, diplomacy, geopolitics, China's aggressive behavior in the South and East China Seas, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of different things going on. But how would you summarize the overall problem in U.S.-China relations today? I think, Jonathan, I completely agree with your diagnosis of the relationship. I think that the relationship is at the worst spot that it's been at since 1979. And I think basically what's happening, um, areas of cooperation have essentially evaporated. Uh, channels of communication between Washington and Beijing have largely atrophied below the presidential level, and areas of competition have intensified. The downside of the deterioration relationship between the United States and China is that it's costly, it's dangerous, and it's self-isolating. The Trump administration raised tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods from 10% to 25%. And what I mean by that is, from a cost perspective, at a micro level, uh, numerous analyses have suggested that the tariff war between the United States and China will cost the average American household around $1,000 this year. I don't know about you, but I'm not super enthusiastic about having $1,000 of my hard-earned money taken away because of this tariff war with sure. the United States. But at a broader macro level, what we're seeing is companies like Apple, GM, Boeing, all these companies in their quarterly earnings reports are talking about China trade tensions as placing a drag upon their earnings. And so our leading companies are being hurt. Farms throughout the Midwest are foreclosing at uh, higher rates than they have in the past, and many farmers are suffering as a result. Workers and manufacturers are, are feeling the pinch as well. The mere threat of tariff-induced price hikes already cost them a $2 million order, and more pain is on the way. But at an even broader level, what we're seeing is China is lowering tariffs on the rest of the world and raising tariffs on American companies. 
And once Chinese consumers get the taste of, you know, say Canadian lobster or, or Japanese salmon and move away from the American products, they may never go back. And so we're locking ourselves into a structural disadvantage in competition with the rest of the world in the second largest economy in the world. And just to add one more element to the, the cost factor, we've watched investment from China into the United States fall off a cliff. In 2016, the last year of the Obama administration, I believe there was in the ballpark of $46 billion of Chinese investment inbound into the United States. In 2018, that figure became $5 billion. So no matter how you slice it, it's become a very costly exercise for the United States to pursue this sort of all-pain, no-gain approach. So you've outlined um, implicitly some of the ways that the United States needs China by showing the way that the tensions are hurting the United States. What are the key ways in which China needs the United States and the ways in which it's suffering from the current tensions? Well, China for a long time has been an export-dependent economy. It's less so now than it was in the past. I think on a value-added basis, Chinese exports to the United States account for somewhere in the ballpark of 2 to 3% of its overall GDP. But the reality is that as China climbs the ladder of innovation and tries to become more technologically competitive to work its way through the middle-income trap, it still relies upon inputs from the United States to fuel its economic growth. And if those inputs were severed, then China would have a, a much steeper climb in its efforts to become less dependent upon low-cost manufacturing and uh, shift more of its economy to high-tech. Now, Chinese official statistics are infamously unreliable, I know, but do you have any numerical sense of the kind of price that the Chinese are paying for the trade war so far? It's very hard to tell. I mean, what we've seen is a steady deceleration in economic growth in China, mm -hmm. but that is continuing on a downslope that preceded this trade war. China has been the economic miracle of recent decades, but is it running out of steam? Why I think the broader question, though, is are we, the United States, able to inflict enough pain upon China to cause them to capitulate to our pressure? And in this competition, my concern is that we may be misdiagnosing our relative leverage. From China's perspective, uh, they have a lot of inherent advantages. Their president doesn't face re-election anytime soon. They control the media. They control fiscal and monetary policy. And they think that their economy and their society is set up to be able to absorb more pain. Well, yeah, so let me ask you about that. I mean, in, in your view at this point, which country is suffering the most from the trade and other tensions? I think that perceptions matter a lot in this game. And I think that the Chinese think that they have certain inherent advantages. So we've talked about how the Chinese view their strengths. Let me also talk a little bit about how they think about our system. They see uh, our system as less willing and less able to tolerate pain. They think that they can get inside of our electoral processes in very targeted geographic ways to influence outcomes to elections. And they recognize that President Trump, despite his very best efforts on Twitter, doesn't control monetary policy and has fewer tools at his disposal than Xi Jinping might, given his consolidation of power. And so my concern is that the Trump administration's approach to this trade conflict is premised upon a few assumptions that may not be very well founded. The first assumption is that the United States can inflict significant pain upon China through the use of tariffs. You know, that's an assumption that hasn't yet been proven by reality. The second is that increased pressure by the United States will lead to Chinese capitulation. 
still we haven't seen that yet. The third is that uh, as things get really dicey between the United States and China, that companies on their own will decide to shift supply chains out of China and ideally back to the United States. We've sort of seen episodic and anecdotal evidence of that, but no systemic shifts, at least not yet. And then the fourth is that the United States can win this trade war at relatively low cost to itself, and that hasn't proven to be the case. Donald Trump tweeted this week that the US-China trade war is a beautiful thing to watch. But key data from the trade war is telling an almost opposite story. And this next round of tariffs that he has on tap, it's really going to hit the consumer products, the shoes, the clothes, the toys, the iPhone products. So I think for the American consumer, the impact of the, the President Trump's trade wars is actually only going to get worse. Now, one of the things that makes following all this very confusing, I'm sure uh, you know this better than most, is that it's often very hard to figure out what the Trump administration's true objectives are in, in its trade dispute with China. And we know that there are certainly some in the White House who don't want to reset the terms of trade as much as they want to lead to a sort of a permanent rupture between the two countries, decoupling is the word that people uh, use, as a way of forcing U.S. firms to become less dependent on China and therefore to make the United States as a whole less uh, dependent on China. What do you think of that and how do you respond to people who make that kind of an argument? Well, I guess I, I respond in two ways. The first is that I acknowledge that there is a certain degree of decoupling that will naturally occur. Mm -hmm. um, you mean as a result of, of this uh, trade dispute? As a result of the trade dispute, but more broadly as a result of the United States' need to protect inputs into its defense supply chains. Mm -hmm. And the question, in my mind, isn't whether or not there should or shouldn't be decoupling. It's whether we're going to do it with a scalpel or a sledgehammer. And uh, right now, we haven't quite found the scalpel. We're very comfortable uh, using the sledgehammer. And I think that it's not working terribly well. But at a broader level, I think we need to ask ourselves, is the United States going to be in a better position in the future if the United States and China become economically divorced? We move into our separate economic and technological spheres where the United States essentially will be competing against all the other advanced economies in the world and China will have a dominant role in the rest of the world. That's not a world or a future that I think advantages the United States. I'm much more comfortable and much more supportive of continuing to rely upon the advantages that the United States has. I'm, I remain very confident that the United States can compete favorably with China. Now let's talk about the security side for a minute or the geopolitical side. We certainly read fewer headlines today about disputes on things like China's island building between the two countries. The United States says the superpower is reclaiming land in the South China Sea. Artificial islands under construction could become military bases. So how worried are you that these trade tensions could spill over and become security issues, potentially even leading to conflict between the two sides? A lot's happening on the security side, uh, even though there aren't the same volume of headlines now about South China Sea Island building or situation in the East China Sea or the situation, frankly, along China's periphery as there has been in the past. It doesn't mean that the situation has mellowed. It's just that uh, given the limited bandwidth that the U.S. media has, it's largely been devoted to the trade issues. And so I think that there are a lot of causes for concern. And I actually worry that the strategic order in Asia may be unraveling in front of our eyes right now. Everywhere you look in the region, there are danger 
lights flashing. In Northeast Asia, North, North Korea, Korea is a continuing problem. After firing two unidentified projectiles, it is the fourth such test. The disputes between Japan and South Korea are a cause of concern for us because having a cohesive alliance structure sort of is the foundation of American strategy in Asia. Seoul dropped Tokyo from its preferred trading partner list just hours after Japan made the same move. Taiwan is an issue that uh, is only growing in significance. Most Taiwanese people remain somewhere in the middle, straddling the line between wanting full independence and full reunification with Beijing. The South China Sea remains an acute flashpoint, despite the fact that President Trump hasn't raised the issue once in, in his conversations with Xi Jinping. Is China continuing to build more artificial islands there and assert its sovereignty over more and more territory? China has sort of hit a saturation point in its island building. Uh, if it, was, it has the islands it needs. <laughs> yeah, it's built, it's reclaimed seven features in the South China Sea. If it were to go beyond that, it would need either to kick another country off of a feature that exists or build on a feature that is disputed with an American ally, in this case, the Philippines. So both of those would be um, risky endeavors at, the, at a minimum for China. But if you look further afield, the situation between India and Pakistan with Kashmir is, is also uh, troubling. So there's a lot that's going on in the security space in Asia and particularly between the United States and China, even if it doesn't track the same intensity of headlines. And what's your nightmare scenario? What's the thing that you worry the most that could come about if the relationship continues to fall off the rails? Well, uh, to, to answer that question, I guess I would step back a little bit and just think a bit about history. You know, between, in the 20th century, three major wars were fought in Asia. Somewhere in Korea, fresh American troops pour in to bolster the sagging South Korean lines. Over a quarter million American lives were lost in Asia. Uh, there is, uh, you know, a pattern of intense violence occurring as competitors clash in that region. In the 40 years since the normalization of relations between the United States and China, there has not really been a, a shot fired in anger or a, a service member's life that's been lost in war in the region. In part, but not all of it, owes to the fact that a certain strategic understanding has developed between the United States and China that has allowed us to situate thorny problems, including Taiwan, within a diplomatic framework so that even as we disagree, we have a way of managing our tensions. I still want to know what worries you the most. I mean, during the Cold War, to use this imperfect analogy, the nightmare was very clear, right? It was global thermonuclear war between the two countries that would wipe out the planet. What is the equivalent bad end game here? <laughs> well, what worries me is that a incident occurs, a life or lives are lost, and a spiral sets in that neither side wants, neither side seeks, but neither side can find a way to step back from. You know, we're talking about two proud countries, two countries that conceive of themselves as great powers, two countries that are unwilling to be pushed around by the other. And so even as we're measuring the problems in the relationship right now, I think that we also have to have a bit of imagination to project forward to understand how they will manifest themselves and, and ricochet around uh, in the decades to come. Okay, so now let's step back and talk about history. I want to try and figure out with you how things got as quite as bad as they are today. Um, for most of recent history, of recent decades, U.S.-China relations really seem to be improving and the trajectory seemed to be a very positive one. For a decade, relations between the United States and the People's Republic of China have been building. Today, we know it is within our grasp 
to reap enormous rewards from the courage and foresight of those who opened the doors of Chinese-American friendship. Chinese leaders talked about a peaceful rise, and American leaders talked about helping China become a responsible stakeholder. And while there was a lot of dispute about what exactly that meant, um, there was a broad sense that China did want into the existing rules-based international order and had no desire to alienate the United States or its neighbors. And then, of course, all of that has fallen apart in just a few years, in fact, so dramatically that it's hard to believe that only a few years ago things were as different as they were. Um, what happened? How did things get so bad so quickly? In my view, uh, the downturn in the relationship is much deeper than the personalities of the two leaders, and it actually preceded both leaders. Uh, and what I mean by that is that for roughly 40 years, there was a implicit understanding between the United States and China, that the United States would take a leading role in Asia, that would try to deter conflict, maintain a stable strategic order, and use its strategic weight to try to open up markets throughout the region. China, in return, would defer its external ambitions and focus largely on lifting up its own people. And what I think is happening is we're going through sort of a painful adjustment process as both countries sort of reset the power dynamics between them. And how do you understand that turn in Chinese thinking? What happened that made Xi Jinping or whomever it was decide, okay, we've been biding our time long enough. Now is the moment where China starts to assert itself. My diagnosis is that 2008 was the watershed moment. Uh, I actually, I arrived in Beijing as a diplomat in the American Embassy on August 8th, 2008, 8808, which I was told was an auspicious day. Eight's a lucky number in China. Right. And in the year preceding, I had received training at the State Department, um, language training, but also a cultural history background. And basically what I was told over and over again is that China is a proud country with sort of a modest view of its role in the world. And the China that I confronted when I landed uh, in August 8th, 2008, wasn't the China that I had had described to me by uh, my instructors. It was a country that was going through a transition. And I think that the two lessons that they took away from that period, which was the global financial crisis and the Beijing Olympics, where China earned more gold medals than any other country and felt you know, a certain pride in itself, were, number one, we, China, don't need to be so cautious about pursuing our ambitions. And two, we should be a little bit more cautious about listening to America's advice. And so in the decades since, you know, what have we watched? China has become a bit less responsive to our calls, encouragement, and prodding for them to open up their economy. And at the same time, China has become much more active abroad. We see it in the South China Sea where they are literally changing facts on the water. Overall, China is adding to its islands at the rate of at least three and a half acres a day. Uh, we see it with the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is China's first foray into building uh, an international institution. President Xi said the AIIB will provide impetus for economic growth in Asia and the rest of the world. We see it with the formalization of the BRICS grouping and the decision to place a headquarters in Shanghai. And we see it in the Belt and Road Initiative, a trillion dollar initiative to build connectivity between China and everyone everywhere Belt around Road it. Deals, countries can lose sovereignty and China can gain assets. Sri Lanka had to hand over a port when it couldn't afford debt payments to a Chinese bank. But more broadly, we see it in sort of this attitude that it's time for the great rejuvenation of China. 
which sounds a little bit like you know making America great again, mm-hmm. but with Chinese characteristics. And so I think that there's been a shift in attitudes that's taken place, and I think a lot of it actually preceded the Xi Jinping-Donald Trump dynamic. I want to ask you whether you do think there is some merit in Trump's charge sheet against the Chinese and that if perhaps his tactics um, haven't always been the best, um, he is doing something important for the United States by addressing long-term problems in the relationship that somebody needed to tackle. The answer I would say is yes, but. In other words, yes, the Chinese are doing things that are challenging to our interests, that are problems that need to be addressed. But the manner by which we are addressing them now is causing clear pain without any apparent gain. In other words, this is a an all-cost, no-benefit exercise up to this point. And that, in my mind, is sort of the indictment of this administration's approach to China. That's a good point on which to pivot to the really hard part of the conversation, which is, okay, so what do we do about this? Say um, you get the opportunity to not just go back into the National Security Council, but to become the president's national security advisor. What's your advice on how to start to heal or repair the rift? How do you begin the process of lowering the temperature? Well, the, the first step is a simple one, which is to bring down the noise in the relationship. As long as the United States and China are adjudicating disputes at a high decibel level, there's a very low likelihood that either side will feel comfortable stepping back. But look, from my balance sheet, I think that one of the things we need to do is we need to deter China from seeking to challenge or undermine uh, the credibility of our alliance commitments. This isn't just an Asian interest. This is a global interest for the United States. It's a vital interest. And in Chinese parlance, it's a core interest for us. Uh, I think that we also need to deter China from seeking to establish an exclusive sphere of influence in Asia. That would be hugely detrimental to the United States. Our strategy for decades has been premised upon trying to avoid any country from building a a sphere of influence in Asia. I think we need to continue to outpace the Chinese in innovation and technology. And I think that we need to find ways to compel China to take on a greater share of burden for addressing global challenges. So the United States isn't the, you know, the problem solver of last resort for every problem around the world. If we do those things, I think that we will be just fine. But those all sound like more ways of standing up to China. They don't necessarily sound like a path towards greater harmony between the two sides. Oh, I think that welcoming China to take on a greater role, leadership role in the world, uh, would be attractive to them. And we shouldn't reflexively oppose every action that China takes. Mm -hmm. Um, If, for example, China takes on greater responsibility for beating back pandemic diseases in Africa, is that bad for us? I don't think so. I think we should welcome that. By the same token, uh, if China improves infrastructure in parts of the world, that's a public good that we and they and others can benefit from as well. So I'm perfectly comfortable talking about the relationship as a highly competitive relationship. I'm uncomfortable with thinking about it exclusively as a competitive relationship, because I think we do ourselves a disservice. We self-isolate, for one thing, from all of our other allies and partners around the world who don't want to sign up for a a relationship with China that is, uh, you know, sort of unvarnished antagonism. We limit our ability to address global challenges, whether it be climate change or nonproliferation, pandemic disease, Iran, North Korea. All those problems which impact us directly are much harder to address if China is not pulling in the same direction as us. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. 
Many thanks to our guest today, Ryan Haas, one of the China experts at Brookings. Thanks for listening to And Now the Hard Part. I'm Jonathan Tepperman, FP's Editor-in-Chief. Our podcast is a collaboration between FP and the Brookings Institution. Our production staff includes Dan Efron, Rob Sachs, Maya Gandhi, Camilo Ramirez, Anna Newby, and Emily Horn. Next week on And Now the Hard Part is NATO fraying and how can we fix the transatlantic alliance. Former Assistant Secretary of State and Brookings scholar Victoria Newland tells us why Russia is still dangerous, NATO is still important, and how to revitalize the alliance. I would like to see whoever is elected in 2020 uh, recommit to the fundamentals of NATO, namely to protect our security together, to protect our values together. That's next week on our show.